Okay, <clears throat> thanks a lot for the invitation and for the nice introduction. Um, I'd like to talk about an alleged difference in approach to animal minds. One approach, the inferential approach, is very much connected to the idea that the animals are behaving bodies and we somehow have to look for their hidden minds. This is sometimes called the inferential approach because I have to infer mental states of animals. On the other side, and I can take here the catchword of life, the lift body or embodiment, if body is part in a way of your mentality, there is the idea that there is no need for inference. That in a way you can directly see that someone is angry or someone is in pain. So those two ideas look like very different ideas and I promised in my abstract to strengthen the direct perception arguments by embodiment. However, sometimes intention fails and I don't think that it works because they both share a common ground. So there is no super interesting philosophical difference between the inferential approach and the direct perception approach. So that's what I'm going to do here. I have another preliminary remark apart from um, failing intentions. Uh, I have a first part about the problem of other minds because thinking about these questions made me just rethink the epistemological problem of other minds. But this first part grew enormously long. So if I would start a talk with uh, the first part, <laughs> it would take all the time I have for, for my talk. So I will just say a few things about the epistemological problems of other minds and then go directly to the example, to the illustration. And here I take the debate over whether fish have pain or not, a debate I contributed to. So a few very sketchy remarks about the problem or the epistemological problems of other minds. Um, this is a kind of skepticism, as it is usually said. How do you know that some being, human or animal, does have a mind? Or how do you know that some being, human or animal, does have a certain mental state or mental capacity? And the skeptic's challenge is the following. Since you have only the animal's or the human's behavior, you have to infer its mindedness or its mental state. But the inference is not reliable, so you can't know, really know, that some other being is minded or has a certain mental capacity. So the problem is supposed to be a problem of an inferential relation between behavior and mindedness, behavior and certain mental states. So here I just want to emphasize there are a lot of skeptical problems. Yeah. There is the problem of the external world. Is there an external world? There is the problem of knowing the past and the future. All these problems have the same core problem, namely inferential knowledge. So there is nothing special about the skeptical problem of other minds. It's not that the mind is somehow invisible or hidden. Very often uh, it is said that the special thing about the problem of other minds is that the mind is invisible. But sometimes things are visible and very hard to know. 
For example, some of you might be brothers, and all of you are visible, but it's hard to see whether you're brothers or not. So visibility is not in itself a guarantee to knowing something better or not. The same goes for not being visible. For example, weight is, as Wuppermann could say, not visible, but it's very easy to see whether a dog is overweight or not. Okay. So the fact that something is not visible is not a special epistemological problem. Sometimes it's hard to know facts about visible things. Sometimes it's easy to know facts about non-visible things. So that's a red herring here. Another thing is that sometimes it is said, well, the problem of what the minds is that I, the subject, do have direct access to my pains and hopes and thoughts and so on, but you don't. You have to infer from my behavior what I think, from what I do, from the expressive behavior, from what I say. And then it is said, okay, the problem of other minds is a problem of epistemological asymmetry. So I have direct access to my mental states, you don't. I think that's a red herring too. It's just that I do not have a problem of other minds in my case. You have the problem. So it's a problem of other minds, not of my mind. That's why epistemological asymmetry is not the issue here. It's an important thing, asymmetry, but it's not the issue in the problem of other minds. Okay. So that's why I think the problem of other minds is basically a question about inferential knowledge, and that's the basic problem of all kinds of, of skepticism. Okay, now you might know or note that there are some traditional answers to this problem of other minds in the case of animals and humans. The first answer is, well, we know about other minds by reason from analogy. Because I know it in my case, I can know it in other cases as well. In my case, I feel pain, I have a certain tissue damage, I see tissue damage in your case and I infer, oh, you're in pain too, or something like that. Usually this is a very bad argument because I have a very small data sample myself and then I infer for, let's say, 7 billion people on Earth. So this is very bad inductive inference. The practice in the case of animal minds is a different one. In the case of animal minds, you usually say, look, we know what's going on in the human case. So we have a database that's enormously large. And if you see similar behavior in dolphins or chimps, you infer that they do have some mental capacity. And if you're going to talk about fish pain, you usually say, look, we are pretty sure that mammals, cats, rats, human beings, can experience pain. So this is our database for analogical inference. So in this way, you can uh, strengthen the original weakness of the one-person analogical um, uh, inference. Another answer to the problem of other minds is what is called um, 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 uh, um, uh, the best explanation, yeah. recurs to best explanation. So we have an animal behavior, we have different explanation, instinct, association, cognition, whatever, and you say, look, Association or cognition is the best explanation here. That's a very useful 
way of thinking in uh, cognitive science, but it's not really an answer to the problem of other minds. Because it tells you how to explain behavior, uh, by cognition, for example, but it does not tell you how to access cognition. Okay? So you have to establish first how to access cognition. But nonetheless, inference to the best explanation might support analogical inferences. So that's the third traditional answer to the problem of other minds. And the third traditional answer to the problem of other minds is behaviorism. And in a way, this is not a solution to the problem, this is a dissolution of the problem. Look, mindedness is just behavioral disposition. And that you can see all the time, just watch. <laughs> and then you see what is going on when an animal or human being is behaving. So there is no inference in the first place at all. But of course, I'm not going into that, behaviorism suffers from an overwhelming lack of plausibility. And this speaks against the behaviorist solution. If something is overwhelmingly implausible for explaining most things animals and humans can do, you shouldn't recurse to the theory only to solve an epistemological problem. So that's for the introduction. And now I'm going to produce some um, uh, sheet storm. Not sheet storm, sheet storm. Okay. So, <laughs> here we are. This was the part I was skipping now. And now I, I just illustrate what I have been saying in any abstract term, in a concrete example, the case of pain in fish. <clears throat> and the whole debate can be reduced to the question, okay, what is it fish can do when they react to tissue damage, if they are hurt? Is it just nociception or is it pain perception? I just write pain perception because that's the way uh, uh, this debate is run. You can say pain. And the difference is this. Basically, nociception is just a reflex reaction to uh, uh, a damaging stimulus. And pain is somehow the experience of the damage you have by the stimulus. A simple example, if you touch a hot stove, your hand immediately shrinks back. Okay, this is a reflex action. And slightly later comes the ouch experience. And this is the pain perception. Okay, so the first thing is just reaction. And the second thing is <sighs> And you can break those two things apart if you give painkillers. If you have very strong painkillers, you can touch on a hot stove, shrink back, but there is no real pain experience. Another question is, is what fish do more like shrinking back than it's just nociception? Or is what fish experience more like ouch? Okay. So how do you decide this question here? So the first thing is that everyone in this debate agrees that fish do have nociceptive systems. Yeah. They have specialized cells that can detect uh, stimulus that are hurting or they are uh, producing tissue damage. This has been established 2003 uh, by, for example, the paper by Snedden, Braithwaite, and Chantle. And of course, the important thing is here that it has been established only in 2003. So why did nobody care before that? But that is another question. 
One answer to this question is that uh, researchers started to realize that fish are not dumb creatures. Okay. The usual image of fish, and I have to say I joined in this usual image, yeah, they just they are born with mechanisms and then steer around like simple robots and then they die. That's all about fish. So I don't care for fish, I care for chimps and crows. And then somebody told me something about fish and I thought, okay, <laughs> very interesting creature. So they are uh, very capable of complex learning. They can form what is sometimes called mental representation of their environment using uh, forebrain structures. They process different forms of information in different areas of the forebrain. They suggest that experiences can be integrated and enable the fish to generate flexible responses. Fish undergo and can remember emotive experiences, so that's very important. Uh, distress, anger, uh, fear, and anxiety. They produce endogenous opioids, so if they are hurt, they produce some kind of bodily uh, painkillers, that's what is meant here. And they display a complex, in no way, stereotyped behavior particularly in social fish species. So they're very flexible and cognitive and social and emotive creatures in a way. Okay. So do not underestimate the fish. And as soon as you have this new picture of the fish, you start asking yourself, what is it like to be a fish? So if I hook a fish, or if I bang a fish on the head with something, is there something it is like for that fish? For example, does it feel pain? And the usual way to approach this question is the following. You refer to some set of criteria from mammals or humans that are present when humans are in pain or when you think that cats, dogs, and mice are in pain. And you check whether you find the same criteria in fish. I'm not going through all of this, just a few of them. So fish have nociceptors. That's what has been established, the specialized cells for the detection of uh, um, certain stimulus. They have brain structures, homologous and analogous to the human or mammalian brain structures involved in pain perception. There are connections between one and two nervous pathways connecting peripheral nociceptors to higher brain centers. This is the stuff with endogenous opioids and that opioid receptors, so they have some kind of uh, bodily painkillers that, um, that are released when they are hurt. Um, if you give them um, um, artificial painkillers, there is an immediate response, so the behavior goes back to normal. There is complex forms of learning, like avoidance learning from noxious stimuli. And what is very important, uh, fish suspend normal behavior or routine behavior under impact of noxious stimuli. So it's like when you have a headache and you should read a book, that's what you ordinarily do. Your ordinary behavior is disturbed because you've got a headache. So intense pain changes your ordinary routine. So if you have a pain in your leg, you don't walk ordinarily, you walk in a way that is responsive to you feeling a pain. And that's what happens in fish all the time. So now you have these criteria applied to, let's say, babies and rats, and you find the same criteria in fish, and then you say, by argument from analogy, fish feel pain. Okay? And that's, of course, an inferential argument. Okay? You infer pain from this kind of criteria. So now, as always, the analogy is not comple complete uh, or not perfect. So one important disanalogy 
is that fish do not have a neocortex. And they have the brain structures, but there is no neocortex. And another important <laughs> is an analogy that the so-called C fibers uh, in fish are only uh, around 4% in contrast to other fibers. And I'm going to say a few things about that, but I want to concentrate on the no neocortex case. So now you can say something like the following, and that's the basic argument of people uh, very skeptical about whether fish have pain experiences. They say, look, in our case, human case, and in case of mammals, uh, there is no pain perception without the neocortex. Okay? You have to have activities in certain parts of the brain. Fish don't have a neocortex, so the conclusion falls very easily. Therefore, no pain perception in fish. And I call this the no brain, no pain argument. If you miss the important part of your brain, there is no thing you can experience. Okay. So as I think as you can guess, this is not a good argument for various reasons. I just make a comparison in order to, to show you where the argument goes wrong. So for example, you could say, look, there is no visual perception without the visual cortex. Yeah, something has to be done here in this part of your brain. But birds don't have a visual cortex. Therefore, no visual perception in birds. So it follows they are blind. And this seems to be a very absurd conclusion because hawks and eagles are supposed to have very good eyesight. So what went wrong? It's obvious what went wrong. If the bird hasn't got the neocortex, maybe some other part of his brain is doing its job. And this part is called the wulst. Okay? So having no neocortex, of course, doesn't mean that no other part of another animal's brain can do its job. So you have at least three mistakes in this kind of argument. The metaphysical mistake, there is still the change of multiple realization. So there is no metaphysical necessity that for pain experience you need a human or mammalian neocortex. Uh, there is a neurobiological mistake. Homologies uh, and analogies are not taken into account. And there is the problem of uh, parsimony. If you think that only with an extensive neocortex pain perception starts, it starts somewhere in the primate family. Okay, how that did this happen in the primate family? There is no reasonable explanation, and it's very non-parsimonious to explain it in this way. So the example should not be about fish. I wanted to illustrate how um, inference arguments work in this area. Okay, and I skip this thing about C-fibers and that stuff. So the problem of other minds is the following. We can only have indirect inferential knowledge of fish pain. We don't have direct immediate knowledge of pain in fish. Okay, that's the general form of the problem of other minds. And the skeptic says, look, because we do not have direct knowledge, we have no knowledge of whatever mental states or mindedness in other creatures. And the solution is, for example, the argument from analogy for fish pain. You use a set of criteria. Uh, you extend the reference class, pain in humans, pain in mammals. So you don't take yourself as the reference class. That's what is going wrong in the, in the PETA advertisement. Yeah? You have a fish with a hook, and a human being with a hook. How would you like that? And they suggest a very small reference class. But of course, that's not the intention, but they suggest a very small reference class, and then it's going to be a bad argument. 
And of course, you presuppose here certain mental capacities. So I was talk, fish build mental representation, they have memory and experience. Of course, this is surrounded by other mental capacities. So it's not a question about the general mindedness of fish. But of course, you could expand this argument to the general mindedness of fish. There are additional arguments that support the argument from analogy, for example, parsimony arguments. And of course, what's very important, uh, you have to take the fish body and the fish lifestyle into account. So fish live in water. This is a very important difference for terrestrial animals. One problem we have is that we fall down by gravity and are hurt all the time by falling down. That's not a problem for a fish. Okay? So you could expect that falling down is not something that was an evolutionary challenge for fish when developing uh, pain perception. Okay, so the lifestyle is very important. And of course, uh, the kind of embodiment of the fish, what you do not have in the fish are the usual features that express pain for, for us, namely uh, features of the face. There is no grimacing in the fish if it feels pain, because there are no muscles to do the grimacing. So you have to rely on other indicators in contrast to mammals. OK, so that's the example of how inference works. I infer mental states from, let's say, behavior, uh, other mental states, and so on. And now I turn to something I call the Wittgensteinian direct perception argument. And this direct perception argument has brought to the fore by John Searle and Dale Jameson. So Searle says, look, we suffer from bad Cartesian dualism. We have to get rid of it. And to get rid of it means to get rid of the inference from body to mind. I think that's a mistake to say that, but never mind, because the one is an epistemological and the other metaphysical problem. Jameson says, look, we don't have to make a difference between humans and animals. In the human case, we just see that somebody is in pain. Why all the fuss about animals? Why do we have to have bodily criteria in order to infer? And why do I call this a Wittgensteinian argument? It's not from Wittgenstein, of course. It's just a general idea. Start from our ordinary practices of ascribing mental states to animals. Do not seek for hidden subjectivity. So it's more inspired by the late Wittgenstein. Okay? So and here is the argument. You don't find this argument explicit in Searle and Jameson, but it's very much what they say, and I rely myself on a reconstruction by Christine Andrews. So, so here it goes. They start by ordinary praxis. We reasonably say and think that some other animals are minded, like dogs. Oh, the dog is afraid. Oh, the dog is happy. We just see that the dog is happy and is afraid. We don't uh, think that, oh, jumping behavior is a very good indicator for happiness in dogs or something like that. Then if one is the case, why do we think that? Yeah. Then we think so, either because we infer that some other animals have minds, or because we directly perceive that they have minds. Third step, we do not ordinarily infer that other animals have minds. In ordinary practice, there is no inference behavior here. Therefore, we reasonably say and think that some other animals are minded because we directly perceive their minds. And if four is true, then we know, now the step from perception to knowledge, that some other animals have minds. Therefore, we know that some other, ha uh, sorry, other animals have minds. Okay, and this is supposed to be 
are the solution to the problem of other minds. <coughs> Unfortunately, there are some problems with this argument. I mentioned one problem, and it's, I call it Tretzky's reminder. The fact that A can be seen and B can not doesn't mean that it is easier to see or know that A is present than it is to see or know that B is present. Okay, there is some general idea here that if something can be seen, it's easier to know that it's present. Like I said, I can see all of you, and some of you are sisters, but it doesn't mean that it's easy to know which one of you are sisters. Just the fact that I can see you doesn't make knowledge about you being a sister of somebody else an easy task. Okay. So weight can't be seen, but I can easily see whether a certain dog is overweight. So the fact that something is not visible makes it sometimes very easy to know whether it's the case or not. Another example, I can't see air, but it's easy to know whether the air is moving or not if you are in the forest, the branches are moving. So you can't see air, but it's easy to know about whether the air is moving or not. Okay, so direct visibility is not a guarantee for epistemological success. And to me, it seems just in ordinary practice, in some cases, it seems plain <coughs> wrong to say that we do not infer that animals have minds. Okay, usually, Searle and Jameson talk about the dogs. But I was starting with fish. And when I talk to ordinary people eating fish, not eating fish, being fishermen, and ask, why do you think that fish have pain? They say, I don't think that fish have pain because they have not the necessary uh, features. All their mouth is very hard, and that's why they can't feel pain if you stick something in their mouth. Other 50% says, of course they feel pain, it's an animal. <coughs> well, <laughs> these are of course inferential arguments. There's nothing of direct perception. And for some life forms like uh, sparrows, dolphins, toads, trouts, crabs, and spiders, it's very hard to know what you can directly see. How does an angry spider look? Oh, take my fly back, or what is it like? Okay. So sometimes it seems to us that we directly see how an animal feels or what it's thinking. Sometimes, of course, we have to rely on inference. Okay. It's, that's a kind of anthropomorphism. The closer it is to you, the more directly you see, and it's far away. Oh, I don't see it, and I don't care whether it's minded, but I care for fish. So. <coughs> okay, and another problem with the argument is that they say, look, either it's direct perception or inference, and since it's not inference, it's direct perception. Well, are there other possibilities to know whether animals are minded? Yes, of course there are. There is the case of interpretability made by Dan Dennett. Yeah, if you have a frame of interpretation for animal behavior, you can say that they are minded. That's not inference from bodily behavior, and that's not direct perception. So the argument is not valid in the first place. Okay, but now that's, that's the core, and that's the, the most important part now for going to the question of embodiment. We could say, look, we can just seem to perceive animal minds. Therefore, we can't conclude that we know that animal mind, animals have minds. So if there is no perception, but it just seems to you that something is the case, of course, you can't infer knowledge from that. I'll give you an, a simple example. Sometimes it seems to us that our laptop are, have mean intentions. <laughs> yes, it really seems to us or that he is very obstructive, or that he is stubborn, 
because but I don't perceive, I don't believe a minute that my laptop is stubborn. Sometimes it seems to me that there are faces in the clouds. They really look like faces in the clouds. But I don't perceive faces. I perceive something that looks like faces in the cloud. Or if I'm in a desert and super thirsty and I see a pond of water, it seems to me that there is a pond of water. But if it's a hallucination, of course, there is no pond of water. So no perception, and if there is no perception, no knowledge. So first you have to establish that you really perceive directly-mindedness, and not only seem to perceive. The second problem, and that's <clears throat> the thing I'm interested in, it can't just seem to us that we perceive animal minds directly, therefore we can't conclude that we perceive animal minds directly. This is slightly different. I do not deny that sometimes it seems to me that I perceive my dog's joy directly. But from the fact that it seems to me that I perceive my dog's joy directly, it doesn't follow that the perception has not an inferential grounding. Okay? So the first is seeming to perceive. And the second thing is seeming to perceive directly. Now I want to concentrate on the second point. Because maybe you lost the distinction here now. <clears throat> okay, the first I think is very easy, seeming to perceive, illusions, lookalikes, projections. Oh, there is Hemingway. No, it just looks like Hemingway. Oh, I didn't see Hemingway. Okay, that's the first one. There's the Hemingway lookalike contest. There are not 70 Hemingways, there's just one. And now seeming to perceive directly. Okay, I'll give you a couple of examples in order to make the distinction vivid I have in mind here. Here's an example. She, human person, sees the problem with my car. Okay, this could mean the following. She sees that the brakes have to be replaced. So she sees a fact. The brakes have to be replaced. Or it could mean she sees the blinking red light. That's a thing, an event, that's direct perception. Okay. Now, how does she see that the brakes has to be replaced? Now, by seeing the blinking red light, which signals the brakes have to be re replaced, she sees the brakes have to be replaced. She directly sees the blinking red lights, but that she sees that the brakes have to be replaced by seeing the blinking red light is possibly inferential. Because you infer from the blinking red light that the brakes have to be replaced. I see the anger in her eyes. Uh, that's an example by Mitch Green and Stout. You could say, look, I see that she is angry. I see a fact, a fact that she is angry or property. I see her anger, the glimmer in her eyes, red face, clenching fists, and this is direct. Okay. But when I say, I see that she is angry, if I have the feeling that I perceive that directly, this could still be an inference from seeing her anger showing in her eyes, in her red face, or whatever. So now I try to give the distinction a name here. Okay. You take the distinction from uh, Jim Pryor. You can form beliefs which are supported by inferential relation, e.g. subpersonal, 
without engaging in any inference by conscious deliberations. So I apply this to the first example. That she sees that the brakes have to be replaced is supported by the inferential relation between the blinking red light and the problem with the brakes. This doesn't mean that she has to consciously go through inferential deliberation. I have to because I know nothing about cars. I have to say, oh, what's that light? This light blinks when the brakes have to be replaced. Ah, oh, I see, okay. But she already knows that. She has learned it, she's a mechanic, whatever. And it's supported by inferential relation. And she can do this without engaging in any inference. The same can be true if I see the glimmer in her eyes or her red face. I can see that she is angry without engaging in inference. But not consciously engaging in inferences doesn't mean that what I see is not supported so personally or by experience or by learning by inferential relations. So, arguably, uh, A and C, she sees the brakes have to be replaced, I see she is angry, are supported by inferential relation, and thus the perception in question is not direct, is inferential. And it can seem to me that I see something directly, but if that is supported by non-conscious inferential relations, it's not direct perception. And the argument can't make the distinction here. Okay, they just claim it's non-inferential, but they don't show it's non-inferential. Okay. Now comes the part where maybe embodiment might help in the direct perception of animals. And the argument is quite simple. But I think the simple argument suffers again from making no distinctions in the concept of perception. So first, there are, at least as I can tell, four motivations for direct perception accounts of other species of minds. You can have four or more um, um, motivations. The first motivation we just met, it's ordinary praxis. The Wittgenstein argument, we talk, we see the anger in her face. That's ordinary talk. The second motivation is introspection. In our case, we have direct access or direct perception to our pains and hopes and feelings. At least some say so. I don't believe, but they say so. And if there is direct access to our case, why not to other cases? This could be motivation. The third is embodiment. I'm going to talk to this. And of course, a fourth motivation could be physicalism. Yeah. If mental states are identical to brain states, I can see brain states, I can see mental states. That's an, an easy uh, formulation. Of course, I have to open up the body in a way. <laughs> so it's not a very embodied idea. It's a very neurocentral. But I can see your pain if I see what's going on in your brain if physicalism is true. Maybe you remember or you remember not, this very old film about a submarine moving in a human body and coming to the brain and then a purple slob swims through the brain and somebody says, oh, a thought. So if you're a physicalist, <laughs> this kind of thing has to be possible. So now I take the embodiment motivation. I'm not going to in, in depth here, just a very superficial um, um, explanation of what is the motivation here. So if you 
take it that mental states, events, or whatever are embodied. Yeah, you say, look, a mental state, an emotion, for example, or pain, it consists not only of intracranial or neural states. So it's not only happenings in the brain that constitute uh, pain. That's the, like the argument for pain, you have to have neocortical structures. This would be the claim, look, without going on in neocortical structure, no pain. This is, of course, not an embodied account of pain. Uh, another part of uh, emotions or pains is that there are phenomenal states, so maybe the phenomenal states, how anger feels, how pain feels, is reducible or not. I, I, I don't care for the moment. And the important part is here, uh, extracranial or extraneural states are part of your emotion. So the fact that you uh, have a red face when you're angry, or the fact that you change your face and you're in pain, it's not just something that is caused by pain, it's part of your pain. That's a very simplistic rendering of the embodiment idea that's important for the argument here. So if some extracranial or extraneural state consists of public, directly perceivable bodily operations, if some going on in your body that are directly perceivable are part of your mental state, then of course you could say, then I can see directly a mental state because it's visible. Just uh, a small comment to cranial and extracranial. Of course, th this whole talk is super anthropocentric. It makes no sense for the octopus. <laughs> it makes no sense for the octopus. Uh, you could say, okay, the octopus hasn't got a crane, but at least he has all the neurons here in his bobblehead. No, it's not true. Half of the neurons of the octopus are in his legs. So he has like a brain distributed all over his body. So basically the octopus is nine brains or one distributed brain? I have no idea. Okay? But the point is that this leg of the octopus can learn something different from this leg. While this leg can be courageous, this one can be very shy. It's nine brains, I guess. Okay, so now if you have this idea of embodiment, the argument is very simple. That's why I call it the simple argument, because the argument is simple, not because it's simple-minded. That's not the idea. Okay, so public, directly perceivable bodily operations are part of some or all mental states. Perceiving a part of something amounts to seeing the thing of which it is a part. That's a very important step. So you perceive me, but of course you don't see my back right now, or my behind head here. Something. But you think that you perceive me and not just my surface. When I go with a ship to England and I see the cliff of Dover, I say, oh, I see a part of England. Of course, it's true. But by seeing the part of Great Britain, I see uh, the island. Right? And if you see a, a plane, you don't say, oh, I see the belly of a plane. In a way, it's true. But you see the plane by seeing a part of the plane. Okay? So that's the idea here. Therefore, some mental states can directly be perceived. Yeah? If uh, some part of a mental state is observable, and seeing a part amounts to seeing the whole thing, some mental state can directly be perceived. Four, the direct perception of X allows for knowledge of X, because we want to know whether there is a mental state, therefore some mental states can directly be known. If you see a part of the mental state, you see the whole thing, and 
successful perception amounts to knowledge, then you know that somebody is angry or in pain over there. So to give you uh, uh, an image for the whole idea here, uh, it's from Kruger and Obergaard. They say, look, we see icebergs by seeing proper parts of them. Yeah, we see a tip of the iceberg, the parts above the surface of the water. Okay? And this is precisely what goes on in cases of social perception or perception of other minds. We see others' emotions by seeing proper parts of their emotions. We see tips, but we don't see the whole icebergs. What it means, by seeing the tip of the iceberg, you see the iceberg. By seeing uh, an embodied part of an emotion, you see the whole emotion. It's like in the iceberg case, and therefore you can directly see uh, something. Uh, here are two examples. You see uh, the woman's anger by seeing her red face, etc., etc. I, I, don't, I don't care for correctness, it's just to give you the idea. Or you see the rat's pain by seeing it bulge its nose. So here's the example, it's not a very nice one. You can measure pain in mice and rat by uh, looking at the nose bulge here. Uh, this, this is supposed to be not painful and this is supposed to be very painful, or by ear position, risk of change, and so on. And if you go to the severe stage two, you literally can see the rat's pain, not the expression or the effect. You see the pain if you think that pain is embodied, and then you have direct perception of it. <clears throat> okay, so a first, um, uh, I have another five minutes. The first problem is uh, raised by Pierre Jacob. Pierre Jacob says, look, this amounts to behaviorism. You just watch behavior and think it's mind. And behaviorism is overwhelmingly implausible, so this is supposed to be overwhelmingly implausible. Well, I think that's, that's rather a bad uh, argument by Pierre Jacob, because embodiment view doesn't identify mental states with behavioral dispositions. You know, we don't say that mental states are dispositions to behave. That's a deep misunderstanding about what embodiment is supposed to be. Okay, and now I turn to the point where I see the problem with this direct perception <coughs> account. And I want to do problematize the whole part relation. So there is a problem of meriological logic behind here. You could say, look, you could see a part of an object without seeing the object. For example, you can see the trees, but not the forest. If you're in Sherwood Forest, you see a lot of trees, but you don't see the forest. Okay. You see only parts without seeing the whole, because the whole is not present to your visible field. And if it's possible to see a part without the whole thing, you can't say that from seeing a part, you always see the whole thing. But I don't think this is a problem, even if you take this example seriously. Uh, it should be a proper part in the relevant sense. So the embodiment view says, look, um, what you can see when someone is in pain is a constitutive functional part or whatever. It's not just a loose part that you can skip away and the whole remains the same. In the case of Sherwood Forest, you can just take out a few trees and the forest stays the forest. But if you take out the embodiment of the pain, it's not that you take something away and pain is the pain. You destroy what pain is. So that's a rather bad thing. But this one is more serious. You can see a part of an object without seeing it as a feature of the object. 
you can see that somebody has a red face without seeing it as a feature of the person's being angry. You can see, is the example, a part of the rat's pain, nose bulge, without seeing it as part of the rat's pain. So here I'm not opposing the whole idea of embodiment. I opposing the very idea that by seeing a part of the rat's pain, you ipso facto see the feature that the rat is in pain. There is another problem. How do you decide whether you see it as a part of the relevant whole? Okay. The nose bulge of the rat is a part of many things, not only of pain. It's, for example, a part of the rat's all-over appearance or of the rat's surface condition. So you can see a part of an object without seeing it as a part of the relevant whole. For example, you can see a part of the rat's pain, the nose bulge, as a part of the rat's overall surface condition, just the way your rat looks. You can fail to see that the nose bulge is a part of the rat's being in pain. So the problem is here, how can we guarantee seeing the part as being a part of a whole and as seeing the part as a part of the relevant whole? It seems that just seeing a part of a whole is not sufficient for seeing the relevant whole. It's not a sufficient condition, seeing a part for seeing the whole. And if it's not a sufficient condition, you need further material in order to establish the part-whole relation. Because the part-whole relation is not given in perception. In perception, what is given is the part. And now you see where I'm driving at, oh, hopefully. <laughs> where is the core of the problem here? Again, how can we guarantee seeing the part as being a part of a whole and as seeing the part a part of the relevant whole? It's not sufficient. What do you need in addition? Well, the connection between part and whole has to be established by inferences. Okay? You know that the nose bulge is part of the rat's being in pain. That's why you can connect the nose bulge to the relevant hole, namely the rat's being in pain. And that you do by an inference. And it's not surprising that you have an inference here. Because what is the logic behind this whole idea of parts and whole is, I see the rat's nose bulge as a part of the rat's pain only if I have some idea about the mereological relation between nose bulge and pain. Mereology is the science that is concerned, or the logic that is concerned with the relation between parts and holes. This is a very complex field. You're just saying, hey, look, there is a part and there is a hole. I see the part and I see the hole, haha, <laughs> is just being very ignorant of this complex field. So now you have the argument by analogy, and by analogy, I infer from effects of the mental state to the state in self. So the inference is from effect to cause. In an embodiment view, from proper parts of the mental state to the whole state. So the inference is just not from cause to effect, but from part to whole. In one case, there's a causal inference. And in the second case, you have a mereological inference. But despite the fact that one is causal and the other is mereological, <laughs> it's still an inference. So both accounts are inferential because both 
the inferential and the so-called direct perception argument think that we have to perceive something of the mental state, its part, its effects, in order to perceive or know the mental states as a whole or as a cause. There is no interesting difference here. Why, why is the direct perception argument failing? Because I think they are overemphasizing immediacy when we engage with other persons or other animals. If I engage with other persons or other animals, of course it seems sometimes to me the perception immediately presents me with other species of minds or mental states. I call this the Wittgensteinian intuition. Sometimes it really seems to me that I can see the dogs in pain. But another part of engaging with others is by perceiving other minds, mental states, you are presented with other minds, mental states, only in a limited respect. Okay, this is the intuition of hiddenness or otherness. You engage with another. So it's not immediacy all the way down. Some things are just strange, other, or hidden from you. You don't know everything. And third, by being presented with the mind's mental state, it seems to me or to us that we, are, uh, that we access aspects that at best help us making sense of our experience of another's expressive behavior. So if I access what is going on in another person, this helps me making sense of its whole uh, behavioral pattern. So what I have here is the intuition of immediacy, but a part of engaging with others is the intuition of otherness or hiddenness, and this I call the hermeneutic intuition. Knowing what the other feels like helps me making sense of his or her all over expressive behavior. So I have to access something that is going on in my dog sometimes in order to make sense uh, what, what he is doing or what he is not doing. I don't always see that my dog feels bad. Sometimes I have to access his state in order to realize that he feels bad and his behavior is expression of feeling bad. So I think all the conditions should be respected by answers to the problems of other minds and by theories of social cognition. And here I agree with Gendo Padai and Miara. They have uh, um, um, uh, articulated these three conditions in a slightly different way. And this is the final part. So the embodiment view, in the version I presented, there are other possibilities, of direct perception overemphasizes the Wittgensteinian intuition. And it forgets about what I call the intuition of hiddenness and the hermeneutic intuition. You could say, look, the uh, theory of mind overemphasizes the intuition of hiddenness, whatever. It's just they overemphasize a part of the complex relation we can have to others. And then they make a theory out of overemphasizing. And that's what I call a bad theoretical stance to a phenomenon. Thank you. <laughs> that's my dog in short. <laughs> so I'm sorry.